Welcome to a new edition of the Scout with Brian podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing coaching, how exactly we evaluate it in the NBA, particularly as it pertains to Terry Stotts, as a matter of fact. Uh, we'll mention a few other coaches here and there in this, but this whole episode will basically be a look at how uh, we evaluate coaches, how woefully uh, underprepared we are to actually do that. Uh, and some thoughts on how uh, perspective really shapes everything. Without further ado, let's dive right into it. Fact, almost all coaches are incredible at their jobs, are basketball savants. They've been in the game 30 years. They obsess over every single detail of everything. They have a staff with them of ten, more than 10 people probably that spend 18 hours a day for eight months straight, obsessing over every single detail, every single detail of how we play this pick and roll coverage, how we teach dropping, what we put in the practice plan today, what plays we put in, how we execute them, what we show the team, what we try to convey to the team. All those things are just nonstop all season long in the NBA. And I can tell you that as somebody that spent four seasons traveling with a team, being in every single coach's meeting during those times. I was one of you. Uh, some people don't believe that, but obviously when I was a high schooler, you know, I was the same as you young kids today that think, oh, every coach is a moron. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, it's all about the analytics. I got into sports because of Moneyball. I, I was all about uh, that movement, and I was totally inclined to be that way in basketball until – I got there and I realized that I didn't know shit and I couldn't hold a conversation with a coach and I couldn't describe one-tenth of a percent of the stuff that they knew and the X's and O's and the detail and the reasoning behind different decisions and different coverages. Uh, being there, being with Hall of Fame coach Gary Williams at the University of Maryland, being around Flip Saunders briefly in D.C. to Randy Whitman to Scott Brooks, and you can laugh all you want, and no, I'm not saying all of those guys were incredible coaches, although, like I said, Gary was a Hall of Famer, Randy Whitman was a Bob Knight disciple, uh, I was around assistant coaches like Sam Cassell, uh, and Don Newman, and uh, Don Zierden, uh, Ryan Saunders, Pat Sullivan, a whole bunch of uh, very qualified uh, coaches throughout my time in the NBA, all of whom had different philosophies and I learned a lot from, but the way we treat it today, the, the discourse on Twitter, it, it'd be like if we went around the, co the country, uh, you know, demanding the firing of, of different dentists, uh, because, you know, some dentists only made 80%, uh, as much as another office did, or some had made a couple of retainer recommendations that didn't work. Like these people, they have achieved a level of expertise that you cannot fathom. And I understand that in a hyper-competitive industry like that, yes, there's obviously going to be some turnover. There's going to be a bottom 5-10% or whatever that just don't make the cut and need to be replaced for whatever reason over time if, if things really uh, don't work out. But I promise you that for the most part, they understand what they're doing and they understand the schemes and the reasoning for making certain decisions uh, far more than, than you do and far more than I do being removed from it now, being on the outside. It'd be like criticizing army generals. I mean, sure, if you do something horrific, you have a massive scandal or abuse scandal, whatever, of course they deserve to be fired then. But otherwise, you know, it's a peanut, it's a peanut gallery. We don't have a clue what goes on behind those closed doors as they work every single day to keep the country safe and to be prepared for every eventuality. You know, it, it's like this. If, if we start losing a bunch of freaking wars that we shouldn't lose, yeah, then maybe there should be some accountability. But if we win the overwhelming majority, if not all of them, and, you know, having the most dominant military on Earth, uh, probably doing a pretty good job for the most part. So, of course, I know some of the Red Rose people on Twitter, you know, think the American imperial machine, blah, 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 whatever, probably think uh, that's a load of crap, too. I, I think we're the worst country ever, which whatever your prerogative, go move somewhere else for all I care. Um, but I, I think most people that 
understand uh, how the world works and, uh, you know, the state of affairs today. Know that we're mostly on the right side of things uh, and do a pretty good job uh, defending uh, this country. Truthfully, uh, almost none of us are qualified to call for a coach's job. Almost none of us are qualified to assess what they are doing. Coaching really is 50 billion micro decisions every single day. Again, how hard do I ride guys today? How much film do we show? Do I rip into this guy or that guy? What do I say to the media? Putting together practice plans, what we do every single day, what sets we put in, what coverages we work on. And then that's not even getting to the game itself where each game coaching is 10 million micro decisions. What play do you call? What adjustments do you make? How do you manage the rotations? Communicating the change that you make from one play to the next, telling the team what play is coming, how we're going to defend this pick and roll, uh, when we're going to switch up things if a certain guy is hurting us. There is so much going on that honestly... It is impossible for any of us to really have an informed opinion evaluating these 10 million micro decisions. And the issue with a lot of these fan base Twitters is all they do is think they understand these micro decisions well enough to evaluate them. Take Blazers Twitter, who I've apparently been feuding with for days. Holy hell, I mean, I tweeted praise for Terry Stotts because... In my opinion, the longevity that Stotts has had in Portland, pretty amazing. After winning 33 games his first year there, they've won 54, 51, 44, 41, 49, 53. Couple under in a short season, couple games under 500 in a short season last year. And now they're 25 and 17. Have they won a title? No. Have they had some... Disappointing playoff series, sure. But they did make it to the Western Conference Finals two years ago, quite improbably, and they've been to the playoffs now seven straight seasons. Am I saying that gives Terry Stotts a guaranteed lifetime pass? No, he's not on Greg Popovich's level yet. I'm not saying that he should never, uh, ever be fired by Portland under any circumstances, but... That is pretty damn good, and please don't at me anymore about, yes, they got their asses kicked yesterday. Uh, every team in the league will have three or four stinkers every season where you just don't have it and get blown out by 30 or whatever. It's part of the game. They had just beat Dallas uh, right before that in a pretty hard-fought uh, win, which, of course, you know, half the fan base is bitching that should have been by more because of this mistake or that mistake. Uh, no. A win's a win, loss is a loss. At the end of the day, they all count the same. No, I don't watch every single Blazers game. I'm not a Blazers fan. I I can't put that amount of time into it. I've watched enough to know, though, that for the most part, yes, his decision-making is sound and sensical from an NBA standpoint, and as somebody that, again, had Eric Spolstra's job the way he started in basketball uh, for four seasons, six seasons total in a video room, I can promise you that, yes, that 10,000-hour rule, Malcolm Gladwell, whatever you want to call it in terms of being able to understand the X's and O's, the adjustments, the schemes, the reasons for certain things, I understand that. And I can tell you that even though Terry Stotts might not make every decision perfectly, half of things you guys are complaining about uh, more complicated than you think and not always uh, a clear-cut black-and-white uh, just mistake. That That's not the way it works. These things aren't just coaching mistakes because you can say, oh, we should have been doing this, but I'll explain later because even if you think, oh, drop coverage here was a mistake, I promise you the alternative has plenty of potential to go wrong too. And there are plenty of things uh, that can go wrong pretty much about every strategy. It's a lot less even about the X's and O's than you think. But anyway, let me digress uh, back to perspective. When I was, you know, in D.C., obviously, I was around from the start. Rookie John Wall, rookie Bradley Beal uh, in D.C. From when there was, you know, some discussion about them maybe being the best backcourt in the league. They had some good years together. You know, we won a few playoff series, but look how quickly things fall apart. John, marred by injuries, shipped away unceremoniously. No one thought would ever happen. 
Brad, he keeps growing. He's the leading scorer in the league now, but he's also on pace to probably miss the playoffs for a third straight season. Look how rough things have been in Golden State since they've had perfect health. Look how mediocre even Steph carried teams are when his supporting cast isn't otherworldly, when he doesn't have the second greatest shooter of all time playing alongside him, when he doesn't have Kevin Durant. Zach Levine, talented as shit. He's in Dame's ballpark when it comes to scoring. Never even been to the playoffs. Look at what Dame had accomplished by the time he was what Zach Levine is now. And that's under Terry Stotts. They deserve a lot of credit for the success, the track record that they've had. That a lot of people would kill for. That you guys have done nothing but complain about. Sacramento, they've had plenty of talent. Prime Boogie, Young Isaiah, De'Aaron Fox, Bogdanovich, Buddy. That team still has no idea how to win. They had two coaches that were actually doing pretty well there. Mike Malone, inexplicably fired at 11-13 and 13 with Boogie injured, 24 games into a season. Dave Yeager, after winning 39 games, coming in ninth in the West. Closest they've come to the playoffs in a long, long time. Just to settle on Luke Walton, who continues to have pretty disastrous results as an NBA head coach. I get it. Everyone wants a championship. Windows are small for it. And you can wallow in regrets and think, if this or that adjustment had been made, you could have had a title. But the disease of more is real. It's all perspective. It's okay to be Stockton and Malone. Winning a title is fucking massive. Of course, as a competitor, that should be your mentality. That that's the only thing acceptable as a competitor. That we're the best and we need to be validated by a trophy. But it doesn't need, at the end of the day, to define your life and be the only thing we equate success with. Some people have disgusting, unhealthy mentalities about these things. I was around somebody in D.C. that literally said he would sell his arm to win a title. He would literally cut off his arm to win a ring. That's not healthy. (laughs) I want to win as badly as anybody. I got sick to my stomach near puking after some losses. I'd be in the video room throwing water bottles and cussing up a storm. And I get it. We're competitive, red-blooded Americans. We get fiery. We get pissed off. It's fair to have all those things. But some guys are suited to be consistent playoff teams, to be the fifth or sixth best team in the NBA, to be the tenth best team in the NBA. Not everybody can win a championship, and that's okay. It's okay. You can still appreciate that level of success. One team is not the only team that should be happy after every season. Minnesota misses the playoffs for like 15 straight years. Tibbs finally makes them respectable, gets them into the playoffs. They're 19-21 and the very next year, and he gets fired. Look how things have gone since then. That Minnesota fan base was convinced Tibbs was holding them back, playing guys too many minutes, not enough analytics. Wrong approach, wrong coverages. Grass isn't always greener. Look how things went after Tibbs. Nate McMillan, model of consistency in Indiana. It's a fucking great coach. Underperforms a little bit in the playoffs. Now, they got a rookie head coach that doesn't even have them in the playoffs. That's what you wanted? Nate McMillan back in Atlanta. What does he want, eight in a row? It's a damn good coach. Hey, Blazers fans, last five or so years, you've had... More success than, overall, I would say, Philly, Brooklyn, Atlanta, the Knicks, Charlotte, Indiana, Chicago, the Wizards, Cleveland, obviously, with trade situations now post-Braun, with Braun obviously had some tremendous highs, but bottom's fallen out since he's been gone again, Orlando, Detroit, Phoenix, Rick Carlisle's Mavericks, Memphis, Oklahoma City, New Orleans, Sacramento, 
and Minnesota. At least, just for starters, that's at least two-thirds of the league you've been consistently better than. And most teams in those situations would kill to be you. Back to the micro-macro thing. So what do Blazers fans bitch about? Drop coverage. Hell, if I had a nickel for every time somebody on NBA Twitter bitched about drop coverage, hell, I'd bitch about drop coverage. I remember being in coaches' meetings where the coaches were banging their heads against the wall, basically being forced by the analytics department to run drop coverage. Because that's right. That's what the analytics largely support doing. And it's so funny to see all these kids that are all about analytics and this uh, movement and, you know, all being about threes and uh, not taking mid-range and so on and so forth, bitching literally about the thing that most coaches are only doing because of the analytics. As we all know by now, teams want to force mid-range shots, long twos. The highest percentage shots, layups, free throws, and threes, corner in particular. So what is drop coverage designed to do? It's designed to force long twos. The guard defender, supposed to go over the screen, rear view contests the shot from behind. The big drops so as not to allow the guard to get all the way to the rim for a layup, and also not to let the big man roller get behind him for a lob or an offensive rebound. You also do this to play two for two, meaning the only two guys involved in defending the pick and roll here theoretically are the guard and the big. If you hedge or trap or you're more aggressive, then you need to have a third or fourth guy come in to tag the roller. And that's when good passers find the kick out threes and you're scrambling in rotation and the ball moves and you give up three after three. So yes, by and large, dropping, at least per the analytics, is the best of a series of bad choices, bad options. Mike Boonholzer does it all season long. Spo mostly does it. Brooklyn absolutely does it. Brad Stevens mostly does it. Almost every team in the league does it. And you could say, does Bud do it too much sometimes? I think so, very possibly. They lost that series to Toronto, in my opinion, because Brooke Lopez stayed back in his drop all series long as Kawhi hit mid-range after mid-range. Maybe Stotts does it a bit too much, sure. But the decision to do this is based on that macro picture. Over a long season, you want to force as many mid-range shots as possible. And playing drop is theoretically the coverage that does that the best. Of course, there are times you adjust, you have other coverages. It's not the only thing you ever do, and it's probably not for the Blazers. I've seen, even though I don't watch every single game, plenty of late-game situations where, in my opinion, I see Stotts making good late-game adjustments, good things that coaches normally do save in their bag until late-game, switching to a trap uh, to get the ball out of a certain guy's hands. I'm sure you also switch some, but switching also presents a world of potential problems. What if you're big, Cantor, can't guard guards on the perimeter? What if your guards, Dame, can't switch onto bigs uh, that can post or offensive rebound? What if you hedge and Chris Paul strings it out to find the roll man for the lob or the corner three? There are 20 different varieties of pick and roll coverages you could do and could try, and could mix in, and I'm sure they do from time to time. And each one of them presents a series of unique potential flaws. Not to mention, if you don't practice them enough, especially in a season where you have almost no practice time, it's really hard to execute it well. And despite, again, you know, grass looking like it might be greener doing this instead of that, Chances are, they've probably tried just about everything. You just probably don't even know the game well enough to recognize instantly on film, oh, the few times they said, Cantor, instead of being in a way backdrop this time, we're going to try to be at the level of the screen to, you know, meet Chris Paul right at the point of the screen, and Chris Paul went right around him, or split him, or 
attacked his feet and beat him to the rim. These guards are really fucking good at their job. They know how to beat these pick-and-roll coverages. At the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to your personnel, who you have, and some bigs just can't do certain things. There's a lot of technique, a lot of nuances to everything. And just because you're seeing a certain coverage or a certain thing, it also doesn't always mean that that was even the game plan. I'll give you a quick example. In D.C., Nene, at least on film and at least in our coach's opinion, was phenomenal at hedging ball screens. So they really wanted him to hedge. Almost every time in the uh, locker room on the game board pregame, he was supposed to hedge pick and rolls. But you know what? Nene, for whatever reason hated hedging. He just would almost literally refuse to do it. And it would drive coaches nuts and they would yell at him and and chew him out post-game sometimes when we'd lose a game because he didn't do the coverage, whatever. But at the end of the day, the players are the ones out there. You can say we're supposed to be doing this, but if Nene, every single time he's supposed to be hedging, just calls drop because he doesn't think he has the energy to hedge and just won't do it for whatever reason. There's only so much you could do. Is drop perfect? Of course not. Of course. There are some guards who are great in the mid-range. And you're giving Booker or Chris Paul or DeMar, Kawhi, Beal, you name it. Wide open 18-foot pull-ups. But you know why those guys are mostly the elite scorers in the league? Because they can hit the shot. That almost every defense now is conceding. And yes, almost every defense, not just you in Portland. Rather than give up layups or uncontested threes. And while you want to force mid-range, you also, yes, do have guards. Like Steph, like Luka, like Dame. That can get their man stuck behind them and quickly rise up off the bounce. Not as a long two, but from three. Of course, the goal from drop coverage, like I said, is to push them inside the line and ride them over the screen and make him take a long two. But now guards are so fucking good that sometimes they're able to rise up very quickly, i.e. Dame, who's probably the best I've ever seen pulling up from three off the dribble. It's not easy. There's no perfect solution. The problem with today's generation, you think there is one. You view the game like it's you playing Xbox, that pressing the exact right button is going to lead you to a win. It doesn't always work that way. On the offensive end, Blazers fans are apparently miserable that the team ranks last in the league in assists, and they run too many pick and rolls. Okay, we're doing this again. So, uh, too many pick and rolls. First of all, Maybe they should just trade Stotts for Steve Kerr. It's actually a match made in heaven, because all Warriors fans do is bitch that Steve Kerr doesn't run enough pick-and-rolls. So let's put Stotts in Golden State uh, so that Steph can just run 40 pick-and-rolls a game like the fans want, and we can see how that works. And then Kerr can come install nonstop motion to Portland and drastically cut back on Dame's pick and rolls, actually, pretty good trade. Kind of seems like it makes perfect sense for these these fan base twitters. Does it work on the trade machine? Can we can we make Kerr for Stotts happen? Comical. Here's the real deal. No one loves the movement stuff as much as me. In fact, I think Golden State has the most beautiful offense of our generation, maybe ever. But as you can see, like I said, it's highly contingent on. Having bigs like Draymond not only setting great screens to free up Steph and brilliantly making the perfect read every time he gets the ball on a four-on-three, but also having Draymond be the point guard, essentially. One of the best passing bigs ever. One of the best dribbling bigs ever. Just bringing the ball up the floor. Being able to run the show. And also highly contingent on Steph's shooting companions being... Like I said, second best shooter ever, Clay Thompson or freaking Kevin Durant, etc. Instead of Kelly Oubre, Andrew Wiggins, 
ultimately, the NBA is probably 90% about players. There's no magical system. There's no foolproof scheme. Because every night, you're going against a group of coaches that game plan like crazy to find out exactly how to stop you, how to exploit every possible weakness and throw different things at you time and time again. Ultimately, talent usually wins out. And fans frequently threw at me Popovich and, you know, that he runs uh, so many plays and actually makes adjustments, all these things. That, again, just proves that you don't really know what you're talking about because, funny enough, if you actually understand what you're watching, go ask an actual advanced scout in today's game or any actual coaches in today's game. Popovich, yes, is very famous for uh, reinventing the Spurs so much so that right now they basically don't even run any plays. They pretty much just have a five-out general structure and general uh, philosophy, and he basically just lets them play. He'll maybe call three or four plays all game long. He's also notoriously uh, consistent with we're going to do this coverage and you're going to find a way to make it work. We're not going to do 50 million different pick-and-roll coverages. We're going to mush and push. That's literally his terminology for it. And you guys are going to figure it out. So if you think Popovich is over there being some rocket scientist making 50 million adjustments every 30 seconds... Probably not what's actually happening. In the playoffs, does he amp that up a little bit? Is he a great X's and O's coach? No doubt. But Popovich's true genius has always been how he manipulates egos, how he controls the locker room. You even see it. Those inside coaches huddles where they show him just screaming, bring the juice. Literally, that's one of his favorite sayings. Bring the juice, which just means... Play fucking hard. Play with energy. Hustle. That's one of his mantras. One of his biggest things. His mantra is not get up in your drop coverage or uh, hedge and then full rotate into a switch. Does he know the X's and O's at a base level like every single coach does far better than you could ever imagine? Sure. But at the end of the day, he's pretty vanilla, actually, and mostly about getting the most out of his talent. It's funny, because you criticize Terry Stotts for the movement. Besides Steve Kerr's post-splits and all the stuff they do in Golden State, Stotts probably actually has the most unique continuity motion series in the NBA. He's got a mover-blocker offense of flare screens, constant pin-downs, etc., Non-stop for multiple guards. And in past years, he ran a shit ton of it. That's almost all he ran when we scouted to play them. You can even find on YouTube, search Blazers Fave 5, Fave, F-A-V-E 5, or Blazers Scout with Brian. And I broke down that entire thumb offense, thumb up offense that he runs that nobody else in the league really has. And again, I haven't watched a shit ton of Blazers this season. I'm sure he still runs it here and there. But if he doesn't run it as much, though, my impression at least, that offense was pretty fucking exhausting for Dame. My recollection, basically whenever they've run into trouble in the playoffs, Dame would be running around off pin downs and flares and getting dead tired, getting bumped and doubled and as CJ or whoever tried to handle the ball up top and find find Dame. So ultimately, I think Stotts figured, we just got to get the ball in Dame's hands. I'm going to give it to him and let him play pick and roll and see what happens. And if that getting doubled and getting trapped and getting tired, everything sounds like what happens to him now when they trap pick and rolls, well, yeah, that's because, again, defenses are pretty smart. There's nowhere on the court you're going to be able to hide Damian Lillard and have him just sneakily come running around. Teams are going to be locked into him wherever he is. Kind of like how Houston got no spot-up shots for James Harden virtually last season. 
They were guarding him at half court saying, no help principles whatsoever. We'll let you guys play four on four. He's not getting the ball back. He's not getting a single spot up look. We're just taking him out of the game. We're going to come double him even when he just has the ball up at top. Sometimes that happens with elite scorers in the league. And there's no magical adjustment or scheme that you do to adjust from that. Those great players like Harden still mostly figure out how to be damn effective and damn good. And when they get doubled, they might try to make the right read and try to hit the big and try to get a four on three. And the big tries to make the right decision. But these things are all split-second decisions that are largely, again, based on how talented, say, Draymond Green is at reading that situation. How much more talented is he than Cantor or Nurkic or Robert Covington at having the ball in those situations? For the most part, Dame time seems to be working pretty damn well. Why are they last in assists? Well, there's probably a personnel explanation for that as well. Dame, not really a true point guard. Like Steph, if there's a weakness in his game, it's that he's not a remarkable passer. Yes, he doesn't see great out of traps. He doesn't always see the far skip passes. He definitely is a shot first point guard, shoot first point guard. And speaking of point guard, they don't really have one. Both Dame and CJ are more combo guards. They also obviously don't have a Draymond. Nurkic is the best passer on the team for a big, and he's obviously hurt. Covington notoriously is an awful ball handler. Mello, I love. He's a bucket, but we know he's not looking to pass. Derek Jones Jr., he can barely dribble. Your personnel isn't the best at that in the NBA. And you know what? You can complain they're last in assists. They're also near best in avoiding turnovers. So being ball dominant, not having as much movement, and having Dame just handle the ball and play pick and rolls, it also has some positives. Avoiding turnovers is a good thing. You can focus on the negative. Yes, not having a ton of assists, not ideal, but not having a ton of turnovers is pretty good. As a fan, of course, you can nitpick out the wazoo. You can find a myriad of things you think they could be doing better, say, this and that are going to be a problem come playoff time. And yeah, some of those things might be true. I'm not expecting the Blazers to win a championship this season. I wouldn't be shocked if they don't make it out of the first round. But I promise you, you're not going to find a better coach than Terry Stotts. Not during this season, for sure. Who the hell are you going to hire right now that's better than Terry Stotts? Highly unlikely you're going to find somebody during this offseason or really any other time because when he moves on it's likely the end of Dame in Portland and the end of this team as you know it I promise you if Dame wasn't happy if Dame didn't like playing for him that probably would have happened by now and that's important I'm not saying a best player should be best friends with a coach and they should have zero disagreements or conflict ever and yeah, sometimes, like if Bradley Beal loves Scott Brooks in D.C., player doesn't always know best. Sometimes you need a change to, to get more out of a player, to uh, push a player more. But Dame's, for my money, one of the best three or four leaders in basketball. He's done an unbelievable job cultivating that culture there, getting them to buy in and play hard year after year. With Stotts at the helm, and they seem to be pretty happy in their partnership together. And again, if they weren't, or whenever they're not, that's probably when Stotts' time's over, and maybe Dame's too. So cherish it while it lasts. Like I said with Brad and John, I bet they never thought they'd be separated together before they're 30. Things are fickle in this league. How quickly did Houston go, Houston fans go from bitching about how they're going to win a championship to James being emotionally burnt out, and now they've lost 20 freaking straight. Macro picture, you're 25-17, and 17, despite losing maybe as much as any team in the league to injury, despite having COVID issues, a couple few games out of second place, basically tied for fifth, that's fucking impressive. 
it's about discipline. It's about building the blocks, about relationships with your players. How do you get something out of somebody who's selfish, who doesn't really compete the way you'd like, or so on and so forth? All those things, I think, have more to do with winning and losing than being able to draw a certain kind of play. You know who said that? Greg Popovich. That wasn't me. More to do with winning and losing. Relationships, how you get the most out of somebody, how you get them to compete. All those things have more to do with winning and losing than being able to draw a certain kind of play. Honestly, that's kind of how I evaluate coaching. Yes, it's a results-driven industry. And at the end of the day, we should evaluate coaches as a whole by the results they get. But it's also one we've made ridiculously unstable by these obscene standards and incessant bitching. Coaches shouldn't have to move every three years. And I know, yes, head coaches are are paid quite well. They don't need us to cry for them. Terry Stotts would be able to get on his feet and his family would all be okay. But just remember, every time you're calling for his firing or anybody's firing for quite, uh, excuse me, anybody's firing around the league, most of the time that's going to lead to not only the head coach losing their job, but 10 to 15 assistants, sometimes even the equipment guys, the, the trainers, the video room, the uh, player development staff. 20, 30 people getting replaced and having to move around the country every few years. Teams that have stuck by their coaches, obviously, Spo in Miami. Brad Stevens in Boston, who their fans all want gone and are convinced he stinks, even though he's one of the top three or four coaches in the league. Utah's stuck by Quinn, no question. Mike Malone, Denver's stuck by him. Pop. Carlisle and Kerr, both of whom, as I said, have some fans that want them gone, Kerr in particular, and Terry Stotts. That's about it in terms of longevity. And you know what? That loyalty, that should be applauded. Those coaches that are long-tenured, those are the teams that have had the most consistent success. Teams that change over every few years, normally still a mess. Even teams that made much applauded changes like, okay, Toronto goes from Casey to Nick Nurse and, you know, that change gets credited with winning a championship. How much of that championship was Nick Nurse and how much was Kawhi freaking Leonard? Because right now, Nick Nurse is, what, 17 and 25 and in danger of missing the playoffs? He's a good coach, don't get me wrong, but so is Dwayne Casey. And if Dwayne Casey had Kawhi and Kyle Lowry and Siakam and Ibaka and those guys too, he might have been able to win a championship just the same. How much of that championship was Nick Nurse and how much was Kawhi Leonard? Probably about 90% Kawhi if you ask me. So when is the time to make a change? In my opinion, when the locker room really quits on you. Which happens. You know, sometimes there's a grading excuse me, grading personality that just wears out a locker room and guys tune him out. Kind of happened to Whitman at the end of his time in D.C. Famously happens, you know, to Tibbs, to Skiles, coaches like that that they say have, you know, four or five years generally and then guys just can't really take it anymore. That locker room, the most important thing. Does Dame still respect him, go to war for him, believe in Stotts? Again, if Dame wanted him gone, it would have happened by now. There's obviously a level of performance that's unacceptable. Lloyd Pierce, Hawks getting worse three straight years under him as a first-time head coach, coupled with Trey and their other young players not liking him. Yeah, that'll do it. Ryan Saunders similarly getting worse year after year, their performance in Minnesota. Sure. Heck, I'm even guilty of it to an extent. Yeah, I, I, I'm i a little bit of a hypocrite in this sense because I have called for Scott Brooks's job in D.C. But he's also had five years now in D.C. and things have just about gotten worse every single year. He's reversed stats. 
I mentioned Stott's win totals earlier and how they basically have risen from the bottom to consistent 50-ish win success. Here's Scott Brooks' 49, 43, 32, 25, 15, and 26 now. That's almost exactly the downward slope opposite of Stott's. My opinion, also based on a little bit of actual insider info, being that I worked for him for a year. I saw how little film he watched, how less meticulous he was about defense than Randy Whitman, how much of a quote-unquote player's coach he was that didn't really hold guys accountable. But even I'll say this, Scott Brooks is not a buffoon. I learned things from Scott Brooks. He plays the CEO as a coach role quite well. Knows how to relate to guys. Knows how to play the media like a fiddle. And he does know the game at a higher level of detail probably than I ever will. Why do I want him gone? Because again, at a certain point, your record speaks for itself. It's I've seen things up close that aren't good enough. And sure, yeah, it's also a little personal to me that I wasn't really happy with how things went down at the end for me there rather classlessly. But even I'll admit, if Scott Brooks gets the Wizards to the playoffs this year, he's probably going to keep his job. Why? Because Russ loves him. Because Brad appears to mostly love him. Because if he has that locker room and if he can at least get them into the freaking playoffs, it's hard to see them piss Russ off and piss Brad off by firing their guy. And you know what? I understand that. And I get it. And I think it probably should happen if he makes the playoffs, despite them underachieving overall, even if they flame out quickly in the playoffs. If they don't make it, I think a whole other story and a change probably needs to be made. But I also, again, understand that having the locker room is important. Keeping your players happy, important. As far as Twitter conduct, everybody's always complaining about how I can't just have respectful debates and can't just exchange opinions, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I get it. You know, I, yes, I'll admit, I'm not the most tactful. I'm not the best at keeping my cool and calmly explaining things on Twitter. But 280 characters is no way, shape, or form any possible way to actually have a legitimate basketball debate. It's certainly not enough characters for me to explain to you the logic behind drop coverage or why they're running a certain offense or why Sats has gone to certain play calls. What just gets so infuriating and annoying, again, is when these 18-year-olds with mirror selfies that haven't even volunteered to coach a second-grade team just are so obnoxious and condescending and and talk down to Terry Stotts and call him a moron and call him disgusting words and just start just annoying. Just make the internet a shitty place and just do nothing but bitch and moan and complain and meme and ratio and all these things that you guys think is like some measure of truth that anybody else in the world gives a fucking shit about you ratioing somebody. Newsflash, no one gives a fuck about a ratio. It doesn't mean anything. You literally, like, we have an entire generation convinced that ratioing and coming to post a comment just to add to the ratio or posting this funny meme or picture, whatever, in a response, that that, like, proves the person was wrong. It doesn't prove fucking anything. Nobody in the real world cares. 99% of the real world doesn't fucking even know what that word means. You're living in la-la land. Like Jim Beheim literally said, had a great quote yesterday, 99% of the shit on the internet isn't even real. None of it is, is worth even reading or believing. That's the way people in basketball really feel. That's the way coaches look at NBA Twitter, That how they care about the internet. You guys are the peanut gallery. So yes, you can say I'm, I'm a little brash, I'm a little uh, upfront, I'm a little cocky, I'm a little... A little bit of an asshole. Fine, I could take all those things. 
I'm the only one really that's interacting with the peanut gallery. Nobody else on, no other coaches really are on Twitter responding to almost every reply, trying to explain logic to people, trying to actually defend coaches. They tune that shit out because, like Beheim said, it doesn't matter. They don't care. They don't lose sleep over some 18-year-old with a burner, Josh Akogi Goat 67, posting about what a retard Terry Stotts is. Excuse my language, but just that's the kind of language people use about him. Yeah, you don't know half the shit you think you do. Again, I might be an asshole, fine, I can take that. But I didn't make it to the NBA for no reason. I didn't make it because of connections or because I knew people. No, I made it because I busted my ass every single day. I gave up my high school life. I gave up college to work 100-hour weeks in the Wizards video room my last years of college. To work as a student manager my first couple years in Maryland. To intern for the Nationals while in high school. To be an assistant GM of a summer league baseball team while in high school. You know what my privilege was? My privilege was fucking working for no money. You can call that privilege, whatever you want. I call it only spending on things I fucking needed and just busting my ass for the grind, doing whatever it took so that by the time I got out of college, I'd have a job. Making myself essential. Making myself somebody the coaches needed for certain information to get the play calls, to prepare, to put the scouting reports together. Privilege? Fuck that. How about working? That was mine. I sacrificed. I put in the time to read 50 million scouting reports, 50 million books about basketball, Watch every video I could get my hands on, every game I could get my hands on, every old scattering report to learn the game inside and out from the ground up. While you're sitting here bitching about the Blazers' Pythagorean record, how they should be worse than they are. Okay, they're not. How about that? That's good. I don't really give a shit that they should be worse or they should have lost more games because of this and they've been bailed out or gotten lucky. You know what the goal at the end of the day is? Win fucking games. That's what they're doing. That's what's important. I'll take that. Would you stand over Picasso's shoulders and tell him about his brush strokes? Dr. Dre, that's what all you fuckers are doing online all day long. These are the top 30 coaches in the world. In the world, for the most part. And sure, there's some good high school coaches, there's some good Euro coaches, good women's coaches, whatever. But at the end of the day, if Gino Ariema, whatever, was good enough, he'd, if he was one of the top 30 coaches in the world, he'd be coaching in the NBA. These are the top 30 coaches in the world. Blazers... Sixth best record in the league the last decade. Ninth best win percentage since Stotts took over. And you know what? That sounds about right to me. That's probably about where I'd rank Stotts as a coach. Around 6th to 10th. You see somebody out there that ranks better than that? You see a top 5 coach on Twitter just hanging around waiting to be hired? I don't. (laughs) Probably not out there. Always a chance, always a miracle, you know, some assistant just is a savant in waiting, but not really likely. Top 5 to 10 in the most competitive industry in the best league in the world, that's pretty good. Dame, CJ, they had Prime Mellow as a third piece of that. That's probably a championship team. Dame, CJ, end of career, Mello. Yeah, Covington, Derek Jones Jr. provide a little defense. Hurt, Nurkic. Getting by incredibly with Cantor. 
Gary Trent's confidence. Some Little, some Giles, some Simons, some other guys here and there. Great. They got a decent team. They got a good team. And they're playing like a good team. And they're playing like a team that'll be a top six or seven playoff team. But ultimately, that's probably about what they are. That's probably about what they should be. Short of getting another star or getting Draymond Green or whatever, this is probably just the maxed out version of Dame and CJ. And that's okay. If they don't win a championship, it doesn't diminish their career. It doesn't mean they weren't amazing. And you guys should appreciate that. I'm not sitting here begging you to not want a championship or to not expect greatness and want to win as many games as possible. Of course you want that. But don't become those assholes, these assholes that you guys look back on and say, oh man, Stockton and Malone had incredible careers. It's a shame we don't appreciate them more. Well, meanwhile, you're doing that exact same thing with today's players. You're invalidating Harden because he doesn't win a ring. Or making KD feel like he needs to go around ring chasing just to validate you guys on Twitter. That's what we're doing in this rings culture. Making Bradley Beal feel guilted by actually being loyal. Not wanting to go join a super team. Wanting to go do it on his own in D.C. But then he's not good enough. He shouldn't be an all-star. He's, he's a loser. He's like Zach Levine. Not good enough. Blah, blah, blah. You guys in Portland, <laughs> you're you're good enough. You've had a lot of success. That's great. You're 50-something wins every season just about. Western Conference Finals appearance. Consistent playoff team. That's dope. I hope one day, like Dirk in Dallas, you can break through, win a championship. But if you can't, it's okay. It's okay. Thanks for listening. Appreciate you guys giving this the time. Make sure follow on Twitter and YouTube at Scout with Brian B R Y A N, and of course subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And if you're a Wizards fan, check out the Scout the Wiz podcast. Uh, George Beerson, Steve Buckhands, a lot of other special guests coming soon. Appreciate you guys listening again, and uh, talk soon.